good to be with you. I come all the way from Yarrow, BC, and those of you with Mennonite roots might know Yarrow. Uh, others might know Yarrow as the place you drive through on the way to Cultus Lake, and there's a couple gas stations and like three liquor stores. Some, you know, so different, different perceptions of where I live, but it's a great community. I uh, live there with my wife and our, uh, our three boys, who I think there's a little picture, which I like to show just because I'm up here and I can. And, and look at them, why wouldn't you, right? So those are my kids, my family, they didn't want to get up early enough to make it to Coquitlam today, so they're at uh, our church in Yarrow. But uh, they send their greetings. And it's good, it's good to be with you today. It's good to be uh, with Tri-City. We've been looking forward to this and have been hearing just great reports of what God is doing here in this church as you reach Coquitlam. And so it's exciting to be aligned and, uh, and to partner with you and, and to get to share a little bit with you about what is on my heart and what is uh, kind of the things that drive compassion and, uh, and why this is such a good fit, I think, for us. So um, like Matt said, I work for Compassion. I work with churches and partnerships around BC, and I've been doing this for about five and a half years. And, uh, and Compassion is an organization that I'm just so, so proud to represent. And for a whole bunch of reasons, um, I think I've found Compassion to be an organization that's loaded with integrity, that they do what they say they do, and, uh, and that they don't hide what they do. Um, I've found Compassion to be an effective ministry in that it drives results and makes change, and those are really important things. But the one thing that stands out for me that's makes me really, really proud to be a representative of compassion, is compassion has a commitment to the gospel. And that everywhere we go, we're bringing the gospel with us and telling people who Jesus is and why he matters to them. And to the point, in fact, where it actually causes problems for us, like there's some countries where it, it creates barriers and obstacles that we have to, to overcome with governments and things like that. And, it, and even here, where I get questions from people that are like, why can't you just go and help kids? Like, why do you have to always go, like, why is there so much religious language on your website? And like, you know, why do you always have to go with this religious agenda that you have? Like, don't, shouldn't you just go and be like helping people? And, uh, and so it, we get that kind of pushback and there's, it actually, I think, belies a couple misunderstandings that I want to get at this morning. Um, in, in my short time with Compassion, I get to regularly travel with Compassion and, and see what Compassion's doing on the ground through local churches in countries that we work in and, and introduce people to that from time to time. And, and that's a really fun part of my job, but it's also a really heartbreaking part of my job because I've been exposed to extreme poverty in a way that I, I thought that I was ready for and I wasn't when I first did. I've, I've been able to sit and, and stand and kneel with families and children who live with poverty and live in poverty, extreme poverty, and, and what the effects are. A year ago or so, I was in Ecuador, and uh, we, went, we visited a home, and it was about 12 feet by 12 feet, and I think we have a picture of that house. 12 feet by 12 feet is like a little bit smaller than my bedroom at home. Um, and and as we as we visited them, the, there's a mom, the single mom who lives in this home with her kids, and she started telling us just a little bit of her story. And she said, "I don't I don't work anymore, because the neighborhood that we were in isn't a safe neighborhood for kids to be on their own." So she says, when my kids get home from school, I have to be there to keep them safe from other people in this neighborhood. So that means she can't earn an income. So that means that drives their family's poverty. And just the thought of children, when I think of my kids and her kids growing up in a community like that, where they can't even be at home safely, you know, that there's that kind of predatory environment for kids that, to grow up in, it, that is, that's a heartbreaking 
thing to come to grips with. A few years ago, we, we were in El Salvador, and they told us that in El Salvador, there's these two rival gangs, violent, violent gangs, driving a drug trade, and that they've recruited so many that, there's, that they said one out of every ten of the male population of El Salvador is affiliated with one of these gangs, and they recruit so young that, and, and kids, little boys that don't have anything, you offer them a stack of money, or a little bit of money in a cell phone, you know, that's more than they had to begin with, so now you work for them. And like, it's just it's predatory, but they're, kids, with, kids in poverty become really low-hanging fruit for them. And I've seen some of the effects of poverty and how it can ruin lives and steal people's hope, and that is heartbreaking. And it doesn't, it, it, some of it has stopped surprising me, but it hasn't stopped hurting to see. But I want to also say this. Every single time I've gone on these trips to see compassion, to see our work, I come back really excited because what I'm seeing when I go is the power of the church and I'm seeing the power of the gospel even in the face of places and corners in the world that are darker than I even thought they would be. I see what the gospel means to the world. And so I want to suggest is that that question of to compassion, why can't you just go and help kids? Why do you got to be so agenda-driven and all that? It, I, I think it betrays a misunderstanding of what poverty is, poverty, and a misunderstanding of what the gospel actually the fullness of the gospel, or a lack of a full understanding. So that's what I want to spend a little bit of time on this morning. I want to ask and answer two questions. The first is, what does the gospel have to say to the poor about poverty? The second is, what does the gospel have to say to you and I today about poverty? So we'll start with that first question, what does the gospel have to say to the poor about poverty? So coming to compassion, I began to understand and learn about how to frame the issue of poverty in light of the biblical narrative. And so this morning, I'm going to tell you the whole... No, I'm not. We don't have time for that. We're not going to go through the whole biblical narrative, but, but just to say this, we believe and I believe that there are spiritual roots to the issue of poverty. And so we, fri- we frame that in the context of a creation that God made good. God made a good creation. And he filled it with people and he called us very good. And it was a world that was filled with shalom and peace and full relationships and healthy relationships. And, and if you've been coming to church for a little while, you know most of the story and that fall, the fall happened and sin entered the world and that somehow we believed this lie that was fed to us that we could be like God and we could be equal with God. And if that's the case, then God's commands don't apply to us because we're on a level with him. And so sin came and destroyed this perfect relationship that Adam and Eve had with God, with each other, with creation, with the earth. And because of that, sin came this curse. And then now, as you you know, Adam had to work and to dig in the soil that was before that was so simple and so easy. And there was a setting that was like a default setting of creation switched from being a shalom, perfect, good creation to a creation that's marked by brokenness and by poverty. And it's not just physical material poverty. There's, there's all kinds of poverty. There's a deeper meaning to poverty here that all of us are affected by. We were each of us created to have this communion with our Father access to all the riches of his kingdom. And when this curse came, when sin came, it severed that communion. And we live in this world that's broken and a world that's inhabited by broken people who build broken systems that affect people and bring suffering. In my family, um, I've seen this book in a, in a few people's hands today. We like to read the Jesus Storybook Bible with our kids. And uh, we've read through it a handful of times now. My, my boys are eight, six, and three. And my oldest son, who's eight... 
Whenever he encounters real frustration or hurt or something goes wrong at school or even he just falls and, and cuts himself, anything that really brings out pain, he's done this a number of times, he'll say to me, Daddy, I wish Adam hadn't believed the terrible lie. <laughs> I wish he hadn't eaten the apple. I'm like, I know, uh, me too. <laughs> uh, me too. I'm with you, buddy. But, but that's like where, where it comes from, right? That he's this understanding that the things that we suffer with today happen because of something that happened long ago, and we all live under that. We could spend a lot of time, I think, unpacking the connection between a fallen world and the realities of poverty, but I think I'll just leave it at this and say that I'm convinced that poverty is a spiritual condition or a symptom of a spiritual condition, and to address it properly requires a spiritual response. And guess what? There's good news, which is that the gospel does respond to that brokenness. And again, I won't go through it all, but throughout the Old Testament, there's this promise of a coming king who's a coming king, especially if you read through the Jesus Storybook Bible, it makes it so clear that there's someone coming who's going to reverse what's been broken, who's going to undo the damage, right? And, and I'm sure that for many generations who came generation after generation, waiting, waiting, that it felt like a promise that is never going to come true. But one day Jesus appears, God becomes one of us, and shows up to live with us. And Jesus announces his arrival. He stands up in the synagogue where people are worshiping, and he reads one of the Old Testament scriptures that was about him. And these are the words, some of you remember this, these are the words Jesus reads when he's announcing his arrival on the scene. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to bring freedom to the captives, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he closes the scroll and he says, Today this scripture is fulfilled. He says, I am that king that's been promised that you've been waiting for. And Romans 5, verse 12, explains it this way. They say, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, how much more did, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? How much more? In Jesus, God begins to undo that curse. He begins to remake his creation. And that spell of that curse is broken. And so now here we are in 2019 and poverty still exists. And we still live in a world that's broken. And I don't need to convince you of that. Most of us experience and see the brokenness of the world around us. But I believe that in Jesus a way out appeared a way out of this curse into this brokenness. And I know that many of you were here together today because we believe that together. So, but what does that mean for those who experience the reality of extreme poverty today? To, to explain that a little bit, I want to show this short, really short, it's a 30-second video, and just to set this up for you, this is part of a longer clip. It's, we're interviewing a couple boys these boys, they live with their dad who is in bonded labor in a rock quarry, which means he had to take out a, a loan from the owners of the quarry to buy the tools that he needed to do the job, but the interest, his loan grows faster than the wage that he makes, so it's this situation that feels very hopeless to them at the time. And so I want you to hear just what these boys have to say. Does that, I mean, do those words 
to hear those words coming out of a child's mouth, does that break your heart? I mean, here's a kid who's given up before he's, before he's reached puberty. He's decided this is the world, this is it. I don't even want to dream anymore. That's heartbreaking to me. Someone said this, poverty ultimately becomes a mindset that says, look around you, nothing works, nothing is beautiful, it's all garbage, and by the way, so are you. And so the message of poverty to a little child is give up. And we've heard that over and over. That wasn't just a one interview. We've heard that over and over and seen what happens when kids are prompted to just give up. The worst parts of poverty, and, I'm, and this is me repeating to you what's been told to me by people who either grew up in poverty or are currently living in poverty, is this. It's not the hunger. It's not going to bed hungry. It's not the fact that they're unable to go to school. It's not that they have to walk a long way to get water. Those things are real and they're hard and they're difficult. But the worst part, they've told me, is the voices in their heads that lie to them and say, you don't have anything to offer the world. Nothing's going to get better. And you, are, you yourself are actually worthless. At the end of the day, the worst part of poverty is that it steals and it destroys hope. So Romans 5, the first five verses say this. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame." Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So hope just on its own as a, as a concept, doesn't, it's, it's not worth a whole lot if it's just by itself. It has to have a root in something greater. And those of us here who know who our Father in Heaven is, who know that we've been adopted into His family through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, who, we know that we're created in His image, and we know the identity that He speaks over us as adopted sons and daughters in His family, we know that our hope is in something greater. It's rooted in something real. And that's what Paul means when he says our hope does not put us to shame. It's a real hope that leads us somewhere. So for a child who lives in poverty, if you feed them, you get them into school, those are really good things. That's really important. But if you don't give them a better voice to listen to than the one in their head that says you're not worth anything, I don't think you've done enough. I don't think you've gone far enough. And so, yeah, compassion brings the gospel with us when we're helping children. And yes, we want kids in school. And yes, we want kids to have enough food. And yes, we want kids to be able to be treated for medical conditions. But we need them to meet Jesus because we need them to hear his voice because his is the voice that tells them, yes, you are worth something. And that progression that Paul talked about from starting with suffering and ending in hope, that happens because Jesus' voice is in the mix. It doesn't just, it's not a natural, let's just get there. It happens because of Jesus. And when children understand who their father in heaven is, and they understand how far Jesus went to prove his love for them, when God became a man and lived with us and died and was raised from the dead and purchased them and adopted them into his family, when children understand that, that's the moment when their ideas of who they are changes on its head from being worthless to being priceless. So the message of the gospel to a child in poverty is that God sees you and he knows you and he has a better plan for you and that you matter. 
That's what the gospel has to say to those who live in poverty, is that this is not hopeless. There is a greater hope that will not put you to shame. So what does the gospel have to say today to you and I about poverty, about the brokenness of the world that we're in? So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 23. And just to set the stage to what we're getting to, this happens shortly before this, this verse that I'm going to look at. Um, Jesus had been speaking to many people who had been listening to him, describing what the kingdom of God is like. And he describes the parable of the wedding feast. And if you remember this story, he describes this wedding feast where the people that you would assume would show up to this great party aren't there. And instead, they fill the wedding feast by going to the streets and just inviting anyone they can find to fill up the party because there's going to be a party one way or another. And, there, and so, like I said, the, the people you assume should be there aren't there. And the religious leaders of the day have been listening and seeing where they are in the story or, or maybe where they're not in the story because they're the ones that assume that they're at the party. And so they don't like what Jesus is saying and they start to get a little testy and they start to test him and they're trying to trap Jesus and Jesus goes along with it for a while but it's almost like at one point he just has enough. <laughs> he stops playing the game. And he, in, verse, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, he has some harsh words. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And this is important. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So this isn't either or. This isn't either worship or serve the poor. It's not, you know, the gospel versus social justice. It's Jesus saying, we do these things together. You should have focused on justice, mercy, and faithfulness without neglecting your acts of worship. And, and yet, so those words were directed to the Pharisees who were challenging him then, but I think these words have something to say to us about what it means to be followers of Jesus because I think Jesus is looking at us like he looked at them and he's saying, is your worship on the outside or does it get to the inside? Because you can look good on the outside and you can show up, show up to church every Sunday and show up early and, and volunteer and you can know your Bible and read the Jesus Storybook Bible with your kids and believe everything right and you can still be missing it. So how do we know someone who's following Jesus? He says your lives are marked by the more important aspects of the law, justice and mercy and faith. And it's easy to look like a person of justice and mercy and faith when I have a compassion name tag on and I'm sharing this stuff with you or when I have my guitar on and I'm playing with the worship team at my church on the, on the weekends when I get to go to my church. And it's easy to do that in certain contexts. Right? It's harder to look like a person of justice and mercy and faith in other contexts. When I'm at home and my wife is out and it's just me and my three boys and they're driving me crazy <laughs> and I'm trying to be a good dad, you know, it's harder to look like a person of justice and mercy and faith then or when I'm late for a meeting and I'm stuck on Highway 1 between Chilliwack and Langley. <laughs> right? It's harder to look like a person of justice and mercy and faith in those settings. Jesus, this is, I think, a really big claim to say these are the more important aspects of the law. Justice, mercy, and faith. But remember, he connects it to acts of worship. And if our worship isn't resulting in this and looking like this, I think it's missing something because our worship is actually meant to form us. These words that we sing and that we say together and speak together and hear when we come together in worship and in our other acts of worship outside of this room, that's actually meant, that's not just a thing we do, it's meant to form who we are because it's meant to draw us closer to the heart of God. And as we draw close to the heart of God, 
we're formed by his heart. And our heart begins to join his heart and God's passions begin to become our passions. This is not about religious obedience to a law. This is not about Jesus setting down a new law and saying, you have to do this, go serve the poor. And so we say, okay, well, Jesus told us to do it. It's not as simple as that. This is about what's overflowing from within us. This is about, like I said, God's passions becoming our passions and replacing the passions we had. And when I read scripture, I just don't see many things that God displays as much passion for as he does for the vulnerable in our world, for the poor, for the displaced, for the oppressed, for children. So a few years ago, I was was pretending to work, but I was actually just wasting time on Facebook which I do sometimes, not often. And I came across this article, you know, news, Facebook used to like just pop articles into your feed and say, this is suggested for you. And it was, it was titled this. I am a, it was a, from Business Insider magazine. I am a self-made millionaire and I'm convinced there are only five ways to get rich. And I'm like, well, I don't know one, so I'll click through on that one and uh, see what it has to say. And honestly, I found some of the worst advice, I think, for the human soul that I've ever seen. And it came, it ended in this line. It said, I think I have a snap clipped there, yeah. It says this, money is the tool that allows you to become more of who you are. Isn't that great advice? Honestly, I feel like that's some of the most anti-gospel and anti-human flourishing advice. Not the most that I've ever seen on Facebook, but it's up there. Because here's the really revolutionary message of the gospel. It's that your life isn't about you anymore. It's about surrender to something greater than you'll ever be on your own. It's about giving up who you think you are so that God can make you into who you were created to be. And so what I would say to this author is that surrender is the tool that allows you to become more of who God made you to be. And this is a hard truth, but I think it's a truth. If God's passions are becoming my passions, they're probably not leading me towards accumulating a lot of wealth. They just probably aren't. One of the uh, earliest early church fathers is a man named Ignatius of Loyola. Uh, we think he was the first, one of the first anyway, post-New Testament martyrs. And he said this, If our church is not marked by caring for the poor, the oppressed, the hungry, we are guilty of heresy. Heresy is a big word. Um, but let's follow the trail back from caring for the poor, back through our worship, back through our teaching. If we're not caring for the poor, we're probably, we might not be worshiping well because we're probably not teaching the gospel in its entirety because we're not extending the hope that is in our hands that God has given to us. And so this is what it comes around to for me when I think about the brokenness of the world. It's the church. It's that God has placed into our hands, into yours and mine, this great hope and the potential for healing for the world a hope that will not put us to shame. And he sends us out to extend and to give that hope away and to, the, and to make disciples of all nations. And can you imagine just for a minute what our world would look like if it was filled with disciples of Jesus? Like how much suffering in our world exists today because of 
greed and selfishness and corruption and systems that are built out of that and people who suffer because of that and how much of that suffering would be washed away if more people lived under the lordship of Jesus and submitted their passions to his passions. What the gospel says to us about poverty today is that God has placed a real and a living hope for the world into our hands and we're sent to deliver it. So John Newton, who I think wrote one of the songs we sang this morning, wrote this. He said, Christ has taken our nature into heaven to represent us and has left us on earth with his nature to represent him. I love, that. I love that way of putting that exchange that happened in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. He's taken our nature to heaven to represent us, and he's left us on earth with his nature, through the Holy Spirit, to represent him. God puts it in our hands. Um, I told you earlier about that 12 by 12 house in Ecuador, and the mom who can't work because she can't leave her kids on their own. Just for a second, imagine, if you can, that's your home, and you're a child, and that's where you live. And try to imagine, what would you believe about the world? What would you believe about God? And what would you believe about yourself? I think for me, it'd be really easy to sit in that home and just want to get out and play, because I'm a kid, and know that that's not safe, and decide that the world has just forgotten about me. And that if God exists, that he has forgotten too, because... You're worthless. So here's something exciting about that, that home. About a block, a block or two away is a church. And the structure of this church, the way they happened to build it, was that there's a center court, and it's got really high walls. And what that church had done with that, you walk into that, that center court, courtyard there, and you feel like you're in a fortress. You feel safe. Everything's shut out, right? There's Gates, there's doors, there's gatekeepers. And so what that church had done with that courtyard is rather than building a worship space or anything else, they built a playground. They just built a playground. And so parents show up with their kids and kids can just play and just be kids, even in that neighborhood. There's a place where they're safe. And so in this neighborhood that's violent and poor and there's not enough food and there's not enough work and there's too much evil, kids grow up safe and they grow up healthy because of a church, because of a witness of the local church. We were in that church. There was a group of about 15 Canadians, most of us pastors. Uh, and, and Compassion has been there with that church for 20 years. But they said, this is the first group of outsiders that we've brought to this community in 20 years because it hasn't been safe to do that until now. So it meant something big to them that we were there. And so they, decide, they just threw us a party. <laughs> they threw us a party. But here's the thing. The parties were led but was led by these two girls who are about 15 years old. These two girls, for over an hour, they had a program where these 15 Canadians were led in worship and were a bunch of games, and they had 15 Canadian pastors dancing, and some of them were Mennonite pastors. <laughs> and these two happy and strong and confident girls were leading us through all this. And we're like, we, I mean, some of the pastors were like, I don't even know, like, girls in my own church who would have the confidence to stand up and lead like this. How does that happen in a neighborhood like this? And people are starting to ask that question. How does that, how did they do? And then we met this next photo. This is a man named Pastor Victor. 
And Victor has led this church as their senior pastor for over 15 years, and he told us there's 400 children who are part of a program they're running that Compassion funds to run. There are 400 children who are sponsored through Compassion, participating in this program here. And then Victor told us this. He said, this is my neighborhood. He said, I grew up here. Uh, He said, when I was a child, I showed up to this church to play in the playground, and I was sponsored through Compassion. And he said... I used to get letters from this sponsor who would say things like, Victor, we're praying for you. Victor, we got your new photo. You look like a strong young man. Victor, we're so proud of you. You're staying in school. And he said he believed those words that someone was writing to him. He said he was one of the only people who would say that kind of thing to him. He said he would attend this compassion program in this church, and when he was there, he was told that God had created him that God loved him and he learned about Jesus, that God loved him enough to come to the world as a baby, to be with his creation, to die and be resurrected and turn the course of creation around. He told us that because his sponsors were paying for him to keep coming to the program, he had a chance to hear the gospel. But then he said this, because my sponsors kept writing me these letters and telling them they cared about me and that they're praying for me, that I'm worth something to them, I believed the gospel. And now, here he is, a pastor. He's passing that on to 400 more children. He's making disciples. This is the Great Commission at work. He's becoming who God made him to be, not just who he thought he could be. His passions replaced by God's passions. Because the gospel was never just for Victor, right? It was for the people around him who he could reach with the gospel. He'd been formed by his worship into a man who lived a life of surrender to Jesus. And now he gives that hope away to 400 children. Isn't that beautiful? While we were in Ecuador, one other story quickly that we were told is uh, our host just on the bus told me she had, she had visited in the, just in the next town over, same kind of context to the neighborhood. There was a boy and he, his dad had left the family when he was a kid and his mom passed away. And, and somehow that news didn't get back to the, to the church or the, the people supporting him. He didn't tell anyone for about a week. And when they figured it out, they said, what do you do? Because this is not a safe neighborhood either. What do you do? And he said, oh, I'll show you. And he took him to his house and he said, here's the door. And he closed it and he just kind of did the little latch to lock it. And then he went back into the next room, which was his bedroom, and he closed that door. And, and she said, our host for the week said, as he did that, she saw the, cover, the door was just covered he had put paper all over the door, and on that paper were all the letters that his sponsor had written to him. He said, I read these, and then I feel like I can go to sleep. The words of someone who said, you're worth something, made him feel like he was worth something, enough that he could sleep and rest. And so obviously the church, you know, at that point intervened and, and found him a better place to live and, and are with him. But what a picture of what the church is about that we remind each other how God sees us and who we are to him, that we have value to him. That speaks to me in in the ways that I experience poverty in different ways, that God sees and loves us. And we need to remind each other of this. That's what the church does. So two things that I want you to know about compassion really quickly. The first is that compassion is absolutely committed to the local church. Everything we do is carried out by a church. Wherever we are in the world, it's a local church doing the work. 
Because what we have to offer the world that's unique is the gospel, we have to entrust it to the local church, to be the ones that deliver it, to be the hands that carry it. And so compassion believes in the church. We, be, we think that God believes in the church. We think that God only ever ordained one institution, and that's the local church. But it's also it's because we know pastors like Victor who stand in these neighborhoods that are marked by danger and poverty and brokenness, and they believe that the children who live there are worth something and worth fighting for, so we want to get behind these people with passion and give them resources and tools so they have a way to reach those kids. 7,000 of those churches today around the world in 25 countries that are carrying out this incredible work just like Victor's church does, and a a whole waiting list of more that are ready to go. The second thing you need to know is what I said at the beginning, compassion's absolute commitment to the gospel. Um, There's two million children around the world that are part of Compassion's program today through those 7,000 churches. And just to to help you understand what that means, I hope on the way in you probably saw the the tables with photos of children. Those those really are real children um, who really do live in poverty, who really do need support. They live in those 12 by 12 homes they, they go hungry too often. Many, you know, they, they, before compassion, they couldn't go to school, some of them. They're children like the boys in El Salvador who desperately need an alternative to life in a gang. But, but here's what's really exciting about those photos. Each one of those children has already met a pastor in their community who has said to them, our church is here and it's ready to take care of you. And our church is ready to make sure you never go to sleep hungry again. Our church is ready to make sure you can go to school, you can get an education and live a better life than the one you were born into. All of these things, make sure you can see doctors and if you're injured or sick to make sure you get the health care you need. And the majority of those children, I, we know this, the majority of them before that local church with compassion got involved in their lives had never heard of Jesus. They didn't know who he was. Once they became one of compassion's children, they begin immediately learning that their father loves them. They get a Bible, an age-appropriate Bible, right away, and they begin to learn who their heavenly father is. And the vast, vast majority of those children come to know and love and follow him, because who wouldn't? Last year, this is, a, this is an approximate number, because we can't actually track this in every country that we work, but, but about 150,000 children made their first-time decision to follow Christ in a compassion program somewhere around the world. Isn't that awesome? And then we've done a little bit of anecdotal research that, that suggests to us that for every one of those, there's three or four family members who are getting brought into the life of a local church and introduced to Jesus as well. It's so exciting to me. That's what sponsoring a child with compassion does. This is more than a feeding program. This is more than a water. Or All those things are good and part of what we need to do. But this is about the hope of the gospel, and it's eternal. Just before I, I finish up, I want to show you, because I've been talking, and I want to bring forward the voices of people who are actually living this. And so I want to show you this video. It's an hour and a half, so the seats look comfortable. <laughs> it's three minutes long, and then, uh, and then I'll come and we'll close. In the Philippines, it's so smelly, very dark water. You can see trash, rats. In a given week, we'll go at least for three days without food. The friends that I played with in the neighborhood got captured and was being trained to become child soldiers. We would beg our parents just to buy one apple 
But even the rotten ones we could not afford to buy. In a period of 18 months, I lost my small brother Patrick, my mom, and I lost my stepdad because of the terrifying disease of HIV AIDS. When my mother died, I was lost. I was looking for hope, for God to just show me that everything was going to be okay. I would be so jealous with other kids. I would feel that I don't really count. Since God, you say you love us, why do you have to take so much from me? I don't know why Aaron Mitchell decided to sponsor me, but when he did, my whole life changed. People from Compassion showed up at my church. But they said, you're going to go to school, and then somebody's going to write to you. I don't have to worry about whether my parents would have enough money to keep me going to school long enough to become that educated person uh, that I wanted to be. We go to school, and it's usually like really good meal that we don't usually eat, and especially spaghetti and fried chicken. <laughs> and you, like, even if I get sick, someone was there to take care of me. I felt safe. I felt wanted. My sponsor is Edwin Bunny. Maria and Han Shrew. Aaron Mitchell. Five women from a Lutheran church that were sponsoring me that really invested in my life and changed my life. I am now a physical therapist and I'm working in a hospital. Uh, today I'm a clinical social worker. I was the first child in my family to go to high school. I was the first child in my family to go to college. I have a bachelor and a master in, in, in biomedical engineering, a second master in engineering management, and uh, God called me into ministry, so I had to go and get a third master, a uh, master of divinity. In Kenya today, I have a ministry called Youth Arise Africa that works with boys who don't have father figures. We opened a small school. It's now providing the same opportunity that Compassion provided to me to close to 300 kids so that they too can break out of the cycle of poverty. Whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. You did it for me. You did for me. Sponsor a child today to break the cycle of poverty in a child's life like my sponsor did for me. you to see that so you could see the results. I love that third master's to get the theological training. Um, he's a smarter guy than I am. But this is the challenge today. Would you consider changing some more lives by sponsoring some children today? That's what we've put in front of you, and that's what we're inviting you to do. Um, just the details, just so you know, the cost is $41 a month. And I know for some of us, that's, I'm not going to pretend that's an insignificant amount of money. For some of us, that is. Um, for me, when I look at our family's budget and how much goes out the door monthly to Netflix and Spotify and Amazon, and I mean, $41 is something we can do, right? And if, it's not, if those kids that we sponsor aren't worth $41 every month to us, then, then what, what really is? And, and so just to be really clear, though, not everyone can, and that's okay, and, and we re realize that, and we're not here to put on pressure, and we're not here to make you feel guilty if you don't. Um, those aren't the ways that the Holy Spirit prompts us. I hope what you feel is excitement about what God can do with a small piece of what he's given us surrendered back to him. The, what those kids can accomplish 
when we invest a little bit into them and the way the world can change because of them. If, if you're here and you already sponsor with Compassion, I want to say thank you. I'm sure that, that many of you are. Um, it's really hard to overstate the impact that this has on kids. It's really hard. I've, I've tried, but I can't. Um, so thank you. And, and maybe there's an opportunity to sponsor more. Our family sponsors kids. We began by sponsoring a boy in Honduras who's the same age as my oldest son. I think there's a photo of him. Um, his name's Roni. And every night when I tuck him into bed and we pray, if I forget, my son usually reminds me, don't forget to pray for Roni. His last letter has said his dad's out of work. He's looking for a job. So we pray for his dad to get a job, believing that he will, believing that God is taking care of that family. So my kids are growing up now understanding that the way we live in Yarrow is not the norm in the world. And they're learning how important gratitude is and they're learning how important it is to do without once in a while. And they're learning, I hope, that what we have isn't ours and our lives aren't about us. So when we're done here, after we sing and, and we do the rest of the service, I'd love to see you at the table if you can come. We have children, we have a whole bunch of kids from Thailand this morning and Matt's going to explain why that is. Um, but we'd love to have you come to the table. There's a form inside underneath each of those photos that you can fill in and it takes about 90 seconds to do. Sometimes there's a bit of a crowd in a small lobby, so if that's the case and you're willing to just hang with us and, and be patient with us, that's great. And, uh, and we'd love to do that. Like I say, this is, this is a real thing. This really matters this really does change lives. I believe that with my whole heart, and I'd love to invite you into that with us. Um, so thank you for inviting us today. Thank you for having compassion and, and partnering with us. I hope that um, there's some excitement building for what the gospel can do in the world, that the gospel really is great, that God really is great, and the gospel really does have dominion. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am I'm grateful that you have chosen us, your followers, to be part of your story in the world, that you use us to accomplish your means in the world. God, I'm grateful that your gospel really does have dominion over every corner of this world, no matter how dark it seems, that there is no dark too dark that your light can't light it up. God, I pray that you'd continue to use us to propel your gospel forward and to to bring your glory, the goodness of your name, to every person in this world. God, thank you that you're with us. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you're here this morning. And we pray all these things in Jesus' powerful name.